0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Annika Gragis, and each week we head down memory lane as I take you back in time and we remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. Leave your flux capacitor at home. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. Mark McGuire. When I first hear that name, the very first thing that comes to mind is the Bash Brothers. Now, there's a lot of other words that come to mind when you think of him power, homers, steroids, cheating. But it was this week in sports history that Mark McGuire broke the rookie home run record and started down his path of stardom. He wasn't just any star. He was a sun, shining and bringing back new life, back into a game that was on the verge of darkness. But just like a flame on a candle, it can be extinguished in a mere moment. And his light will never shine as bright as it once did. But there's more to this story and plenty of gaps in between. But someone who learned a lot about the Bash Brothers and filled in quite a few of those gaps himself is Dale Tafoya, author of The Bash Brothers, A Legacy Subpoenaed. Dale interviewed many who were close to McGuire. We'll learn more about Mark McGuire, his rookie record, the most exciting season in baseball, and what those around him thought about his steroid admission. He'll join me later to discuss McGuire, as well as his new book, Mark McGuire was 22 years old when he broke into the big leagues for the Oakland A's on August 22, 1986. It was this week in history, during his rookie year in 1987, that Big Mac first broke Al Rosen's rookie record of 37 home runs on August 11th. Then three days later, on August 14th, broke the major league rookie record of 38 home runs. This... Is when the world took notice. For more, let's hear home run number 39. Here's sound from the past. Mark fly to center, then
1: jumped on a breaking ball and doubled into the left field seat. to the fourth or in the fifth inning, and that one may be it. Way right back, and there's your record. Mark McGuire puts the A's in front with his major league rookie record 39th home run. And the way he's done so many this year on first pitch, Sutton didn't watch Steinbox. he watched that one. And we'll
0: watch it. Sound courtesy of Major League Baseball. McGuire finished the season with 49 home runs, a record that stood as the Major League record until Yankees Aaron Judge burst on the scene in 2017. In 1998, Maguire broke the record for most home runs in a season in Major League history, breaking Roger Maris' mark of 61 by knocking 70 himself. But that is not where the story ends. In 2005, Maguire and 10 other baseball players and executives, including fellow Bash brother Jose Canseco, were subpoenaed to testify at a congressional meeting on steroids. He declined to answer questions under oath. Five years later he finally came clean, admitting to using illegal steroids. But the damage had already been done. It may be known as the steroid era, but his decision to use performance-enhancing drugs is what has kept him out of baseball's sacred hall of fame and tainted his legacy. But there's even more to the story. And it all started with his first great feat. And now for more, let's head back in time to 1987 with Dale Tafoya. Roads? Well we're going, we don't need roads. All right, so now we head back in time to 1987 with Dale Tafoya, the author of two books, and his newest book is Billy Ball, Billy Martin and the Resurrection of the Oakland A's. We'll get more into that book in just a little bit, but he also wrote another book called Bash Brothers, A Legacy Subpoena," one that we'll delve a little bit more into as this week marks the anniversary of when Mark McGuire broke the rookie home run record. Dale, thank you so much for coming on talking some baseball. Oh, it's a
1: pleasure, Anna. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you on here. Look, I grew up here in the Bay Area. I grew up in the East Bay. I grew up a, an A's fan. Talking about the Bass Brothers, you're talking about my childhood. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this book.
1: Yeah, it, it's exciting, and I, as as you mentioned, I was a teenager watching uh, Maguire and Conseco as the Bass Brothers in, in in the in the late '80s. So it should be fun, and look is bringing back a lot of memories already. Just uh, when we talked about setting this up, so looking forward to it. Anna. It's
0: been nostalgic, honestly, looking back on those days. But how long have you actually covered the A's, and what was your relationship like with the team over the years?
1: Um, I've been—I uh, don't—I don't cover the A's on a daily basis. Although I, I, I keep in touch with them for certain projects. If I want to cover one game or a couple games a season, I'll get a credential and show up there and, and cover them, write an article or something. But yeah, I have—I have a good relationship. And it's just one of those things where you write a book, some may want to participate in it, and others may not. But you still have to grind and finish it out and and submit the manuscript to the publisher.
0: So how did this whole book come to be? Like, how did you go from, hey, I'm going to write a book about the Bash Brothers to actually having that book in hand?
1: Well, it was uh, back in 2000. I started, um, although I didn't get a book deal with Potomac Books until 2008. I started the book in 2004, and this was all during that time where they were McGuire and Cusacko, and there was big steroid scandal, and they're they're going to go before they went before Congress and the congressional hearings back in 2005, and put together a book proposal, um, got rejected a few times, and whenever you're you're an author, when you write book proposals, when you start out, you're going to get some rejection. You just got mm-hmm. you just can't give up. So I perfected the manuscript, perfected the uh, the book pro- the book proposal, and submitted it again. And back in 2007, got the book deal. And yeah, just a- as a young teenager, I remember both of them. And I, I remember the A's were really bad a- after Billy Ball. The end of Billy Ball in 1981, when the A's reached the a- ALCS and faced the Yankees, it really had some tough years from '92 to 1986. <laughs> So Mark McGuire and Jose Casaco, when they burst on the scene, they were just like, they represented the new era of Oakland A's baseball, the, the, the domination 88, 89, 90, mm-hmm. when uh, they went to the, uh, to the world series. So just, just my fascination with the Bass brothers, um, how they trailblaze really weightlifting in baseball as well. And uh, just really fun to, 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 to put together and, as you mentioned, when you see it in a hardcover, it's even more exciting.
0: Now you've talked to a ton of people to, when we were putting this book together. I think it was over 150 people, and some big names as well. Who are some of the people that you interviewed, and how did you get to talking to them?
1: Right. Well, I wasn't able to interview uh, Mark McGuire or Jose Canseco. Um, I got I talked to Jose Canseco's people back then, and uh, they wanted money, or he wanted money. Mm-hmm. So that publisher we weren't we weren't going to pay him to for an interview. And McGuire really wasn't talking to anybody uh, back around 2005, 2006. He was uh, in Shady Canyon where he lived, kind of hiding out. So he, he I didn't talk to any of them. But I was able to talk to uh, Dennis Eckersley, uh, A's former GM, Sandy Alderson, A's former uh, President Roy Eisenhower, Bob Watson, Lon Simmons, uh, Terry Steinbach, pretty much all, all of their, their teammates executives from high school coaches, college coaches, leg- legendary college coach of USC, Rod Dado, who, who, uh, coached McGuire at USC back in, in the early eighties. So that all helped just to put this together and, uh, create, create the product of, of the Bass brothers. So it was really, uh, and it, and it's really when you, when you're an author and uh, as you know, you're on your own, you can't really depend on people or assume they're going to help you or give you an interview you have to hustle and and find people where they are and talk to them and convince them to talk to you and and uh, but in the end it's all worth it and was able to put together a a pretty good book on Kaseko and Maguire
0: now let's go back to 1987 so 87 was Mark Maguire's rookie year what was the expectation like for him when he joined the club
1: well, you know what? As great as Mark McGuire was as a player, the, the home run, no one really expected him to be the legendary slugger that he became. He, in fact, after his, his cup of coffee with the A's, when he was called up in 1986, the A's sent Mark McGuire to the Dominican, Repu- Dominican Republic to play baseball during the winter, and he was just so unhappy there. He was miserable playing there. He left back. He came back to the United States on his own. He was exhausted. So he really, that spring training, that rookie year in 1987, he came back, and he really wasn't in good favor with the A's Hmm. because he left the Dominican Republic uh, during that winter. Also, Anna, the A's had Rob Nelson, a touted first baseman, that they drafted in 1983. The draft drafted Mark McGuire in 1984. So the plan was for Rob Nelson, this strapping left-handed stud to play at first base. And Mark was going to play some with Carney Lansford as well. And that was the plan to start the season. But Rob Nelson, who also went, went to winter ball, he stuck it out in winter ball during that 1986 off season. But he lost 20 pounds because of the heat, because of the diet over there. So McGuire just, I mean, uh, Rob Nelson, excuse me, Rob Nelson just struggled out of the gate in, in 1987. And by, I would say, three weeks in, into the season, McGuire was the everyday first baseman and Carney Lansford was the everyday third baseman. And the rest is history.
0: I mean, the rest is complete history. I mean, he made history that year. He not only made noise, he turned it up to 11. I mean, let's talk about the high points. What were some of the high points of that season?
1: Oh, just, just incre- incredible uh, barrages of home runs. He In one series in Cleveland, in, back to, in back-to-back games, I remember, he had five home runs in, in two games. He scored, he scored a run in nine consecutive at-bats, breaking a record. Um, and as we know, when he hits the game the, game, uh, game, the record-breaking home run for rookies off Don Sutton in Anaheim, that, that was a big big deal, and he was able to do that where he grew up. Mark McGuire grew up in Claremont. He grew up down south, so he was able to break the rookie record uh, in Anaheim. And not to mention, McGuire ended the 1987 season with 49 home runs.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: last game of the season, his wife was giving birth. So McGuire had a choice to stay in Chicago, where they were playing the final game, to try to hit 50. Or be with his wife, who was giving birth to Matthew, his first son. McGuire chose to uh, be with his wife, Kathy, and be there for for the birth of his son. And he ended the the season with 49 home runs. So, Also, what stands out, Anna, about Mark McGuire is he was such an innocent, nice, jolly-go-lucky guy. I mean, Bud Bud Jirasi, who covered the A's, he was A's beat writer back then. He called uh, Mark McGuire Satan's nightmare because of his goodness, I and mean, he he did not seek any limelight. Just a nice, nice guy, and pitchers would just beam him all the time. They'd hit him in the head, hit him in the back, and other ace players would say, "Hey, when they hit you, you need to go charge the mound." And Mark Mark McGuire didn't really charge the mound. He, he didn't think they were hitting him, so he had to develop some toughness as well for the pitchers to respect him. It was uh, just just a great season. It really put him on the map. Again, though, no one expected Mark McGuire to be the legendary slugger that he he eventually became.
0: And they didn't. And he was, like you said, he was the good boy of baseball. But then on the other side, you had the bad boy of baseball in his bash brother, Jose Canseco, who the previous season had won the Rookie of the Year Award. You know, you have both of them winning back-to-back awards, and they were the most exciting power hitters in the game on the same team, what kind of added pressure was that for the Bash Brothers?
1: Oh yeah, it was just it was they, the Bash Brothers, Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire. They they were rock stars. I mean, they were two popular sluggers. They had the icon, iconic Bash Brothers poster with them in front of uh, Oakland Police uh, patrol cars at the Coliseum. That's an iconic poster, and, and they really tra- they popularized weightlifting. And, and, of course, we know steroids uh, sometimes come with that. Mm-hmm. And they were receiving so much attention. They were dominating, and they were they were hitting tape measure home runs on the A's who were dominating baseball. The A's were the story of baseball. So they were just receiving a lot of attention because they were muscling the A's. And the A's had great pitching, but they were just hitting these prodigious home runs and helping the A's win, and they were, were receiving a – just a lot of, of attention. And as you mentioned, Conseco, he was touted as the natural coming up. People expected Conseco to be the, the Willie Mays, the Roy Hobbs. And it turns out that Mark McGuire hit, hit more home runs than, uh, than Conseco. But that's kind of how the narrative started when they came up.
0: You know, you mentioned also when McGuire had missed his chance to get number 50 home run because that last game of the season because he was wanted to be there, obviously, for the birth of his first child. Look, I'm the mother of two boys. I know my feelings on this. But what were people saying at that time about that decision?
1: Well, I think that they wondered what was going on. But a lot of people, teammates and people around the age, they, um, they respected Mark McGuire for making that decision. And Greg Catteray told me, a the, the, uh, former reliever with the A's, he said if McGuire would have played that final game at Comiskey Park in 1987, he would have hit number 50 because the wind was just blowing out to left field. But everybody, that pretty much confirmed what a lot of people felt, that McGuire was a, you know, was a good person. And he was a family man and wanted to be for his wife. And numbers weren't that important to him. He'd rather be there for his wife or those, that special moment with his, the birth of his son.
0: And, I, and it's completely understandable and to stay true to his image and who he was. But now the hard part. We've seen the ups and downs of McGuire. He crushed Roger Maris' home run record during that exciting summer in the home run race against Sammy Sosa. He was a baseball hero. But then we were faced with the truth. When the steroids bombshell dropped, you spoke to a ton of people about the Bash brothers, but what was the consensus about Maguire specifically in regards to steroids and his legacy?
1: Well, I, th- I think when I started interviewing people back in 2004 for the book, and I talked to teammates of both Conseco and Maguire, and the consensus was from players and, and teammates and coaches and executives that were around was Conseco was more the obvious steroid user, and they tended to de- defend McGuire more because I think Conseco talked about steroids more probably than McGuire did, or McGuire was more discreet about it. Uh, when I talked to players, they would say, oh, Mark McGuire was a hard worker. Uh, he worked hard. There was not a harder worker than McGuire. He spent hours in, in the gym. But then the revelation started coming out, started in 1988 with the... Andrew Steen found in his locker, and, and, and of course, it was confirmed when uh, during the con- con- congressional hearings, Mark McGuire did not – he said before Congress he did not want to talk about the past. So that also caused some doubt in McGuire, and of course later he admitted it to, I believe, Bob Costas that he used steroids I think mm-hmm. in the early 90s to recover from some injuries. So, yeah, I remember, I remember that, and that's kind of how it, how, how it, it started. And you have the Bass Brothers who, who kind of came up in the AIDS organization, these superstars. Suddenly by 2005, they're talking about steroids before Congress. So that kind of allowed me to put this book together to kind of paint the whole picture. A tragic story, really, too, right? because uh, both of them are not in the Hall of Fame about how steroids, bodybuilding, that kind of came into all the story about these two prolific home run sluggers.
0: So McGuire said he first tried steroids after the 1989 season when the A's won the World Series, then began using them on a consistent basis after 1993. So how much of his hitting home runs was the steroids? How much was his talent and hand-eye coordination?
1: I think McGuire was a great hitter. And and steroids, it, it, when people say this, steroids doesn't make a hitter great. You have the science of hitting. You have uh, these hours. These guys work on their stance and back speed. Steroids can muscle you up. They can help you recover. But I be- do believe McGuire would at least hit 500 home runs. Maybe steroids added maybe a, a 150. I do believe he would hit 500 because he had the home run stroke and McGuire, he was a home run hitter from the the day he stepped on a little league field. Mm-hmm. So he was hitting hit. He was his little league team was the uh, the was, was the A's. So he was always a home run hitter. Although he was drafted, Mark McGuire was drafted as a pitcher in 1981 by the Montreal Expos, but McGuire chose USC instead of playing professional baseball with the Expos. So I do believe Mark McGuire would have been a hall of still been put hall of fame numbers. Um, I, but I don't believe if he hadn't used the steroids that he would have he broke some of those records.
0: Do you think if he had been honest from the beginning, his image would have been regarded differently?
1: I think so. And I think his image really took a hit. It was really sad and embarrassing when the Congress was challenging him with these questions. Hey, did you use steroids? I mean, they packaged these questions in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And all he said was, I do not want to talk about the past. I don't think that helped his image, and I think people really saw him and said, okay, he, he, he did it. And, of course, we know he eventually, he, he eventually admitted to it. So, yeah, I think it definitely, especially that performance before Congress, definitely wasn't good PR for them, although he still didn't admit it to them.
0: Yeah, I always wonder if it's easier for the public to forgive, you know, those who apologize rather than try to hide their transgressions, or do they also don't want to know the truth? Right, right. And also, you know, even when 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 players like and and
1: Maguire, they have these, these, these moments when PR is really bad for them, what they do is just wait it out for people to forget. <laughs> and eventually, while people don't forget completely, People get fascinated or glued to other stories or other occurrences, current events, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's helped uh, Conseco McGuire during real severe bad PR. Although people, you know, in the long run will always, always remember that.
0: Yeah. Now, there were discrepancies in what McGuire said and what Jose Canseco revealed in his tell-all book. Mark said there was no truth in when Canseco said he had injected McGuire with steroids in the clubhouse. But do people generally believe one over the other or take both with a grain of salt?
1: Well, I think you could take both with a grain of salt. I think that Canseco, I don't think he'd have any reason to lie about it. I really believe he he thinks he did it and he did it. and even players, even Reggie Jackson, I once heard Reggie Jackson say Coseco you could say a lot of things about Jose, but you can't say he's a liar. Mm-hmm. So see, I think he was uh, telling the truth, but you have a situation with McGuire, you know they were they were former teammates, Jose and Mark, but they were never close. Mark, I'm sure Mark did not want to dignify Jose's claims. To make him look right. Not o- not only to to admit he did steroids, but he, he, he didn't want to dignify Conseco's claims in the book. So that's why he denied it or, or didn't. Uh, he denied it. right? After Conseco wrote Juice, the right. first book with allegations that McGuire used steroids, McGuire initially denied that he'd ever used steroids until later. The the Congress stories came up and he was subpoenaed and it was, and eventually we found out he, he he actually was and and here also again this kind of McGuire got really aggressive and his behavior changed like around eighty eight as I mentioned in eighty seven McGuire was just this nice kid as I mentioned Satan's nightmare <laughs> he, he 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 thanked you if a reporter wanted to interview him he thanked he thanked the reporter after such a polite. Uh, uh, young player, but in 1988 he, he had he added an edge to him. In fact, Kurt McCaskill hit him in one Friday night game, I believe, in April in 1988, and and this is the first time McGuire actually got mad and started going toward McCaskill on the mound. And that's when observers were saying, "Hey, this McGuire, he, he he's changed. He's added added an edge." And that also played into just that A's. Swagger in '88, they added Dave Parker, Don Baylor, Dave Henderson, and that whole team had this swagger about them, and uh, it rubbed off on McGuire.
0: Ah, so how much do you think was actually more of the attitude of the clubhouse versus maybe a potential roid rage?
1: Right. Well, it could it could have been that. I have no proof of it. Right. But I do know in '88 McGuire added an edge to him. He was, and also he was dealing. To be fair, he was dealing with stardom. He was after Good his point. rookie season, re- reporters were just flocking to him for interviews. and It really annoyed him, and he got tired of it. In 88, he's coming off a season where he breaks the, the rookie home run record, and he just adds an edge. So I think it was from the swagger, uh, but you can't ignore the fact that he, he was getting more aggressive uh, in 88
0: and there is a little bit of a difference between how him and Jose Canseco, you know, addressed the media, how they were in the spotlight. So there was a little bit of difference in how they handled that. But now after all your research that you had done over the years, all the after all the interviews, did your perception about Mark McGuire change at all after writing this book?
1: Yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think it, it showed me as meticulous that I really do a lot of research, <laughs> And I trace almost every day of a player's career and, and read newspaper archives and interviews. And, and it just pointed to me, to McGuire, the change in him in 1988, from this jolly-go-look rookie kid in 1987 to 88, where just, he just comes with a swagger. He breaks up with his, his wife that he met in college, who was Rod back girl, Kathy Hughes. They had their newlyweds. They loved each other. He broke up with her shortly shortly thereafter. So you're also you have this this young nice kid dealing with stardom and fame, and he struggling. He's dealing with that and the stardom, and you have that as well. So even before my book came out in 2008, so even before I believe McGuire. Uh, admitted it. Yeah, I had a strong speculation because there were people that came out during that time, Anna, mm-hmm. that said they had ejected McGuire. Not just Conseco. There was a former drug dealer, dealer named Curtis Wensloff that came out, I believe, in, in the mid 2000s, who was, was connected with Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson played with Konseku and McGuire with the A's in 1987. We have to remember that. Mm-hmm. And Curtis Winslow came and he worked out with Reggie Jackson, but he said he supplied Konseku and McGuire with steroids during that time.
0: It's just so fascinating just thinking about how much pressure he had, you know, going from that spectacular rookie season and just think how much pressure it must be to also keep up that type of talent. And just look at, I mean, just looking at the numbers here, you have Mark McGuire, his rookie record of 49 home runs in 1987 was held until 2017 when Aaron judge came along. Let's also talk about the game now though. We went from players who were juiced to now baseballs that are apparently juiced. I mean, it's just, it's an interesting time in baseball right now.
1: Right. Well, home runs are exciting and people like to see the long ball and, and it's, it's been a game is fun, but, and we have to admit back in 1988, I was watching the, the Sosa McGuire home run chase. I mean, it just, it just, it's exciting. And there are a lot of people watching. I remember when, when McGuire broke the broke marriage, record in St. Louis, um, I was watching, I believe that Monday night <laughs> seeing it. So yeah, just people are fascinated with excitement and people always love the home run ball to see, especially not only the home runs, but to see how, far the could save when McGuire would hit them I mean Maguire is huge muscles I remember covering a game back in 1997 uh, with Maguire right before he got traded to St. Louis and uh, I would see these Dodgers players Mike Piazza they were all just well during batting practice where Maguire was just just clobbering these home runs to the second deck and to Mount Davis these players, Piazza, they just stopped and they were just watching this guy blast these mammoth home runs uh, during batting practice like they were in awe. So, yeah, home runs just are, are exciting and people want to watch it. And, and truly, America's attention was on, on baseball during that magical 1998 season when McGuire was hitting all those tape measure home runs to break Maris' record.
0: And it saved baseball. You know that it did. After the strike in 94, it, it, it saved the sport, definitely. And I, I will always stand by to that. Did you, by any chance, ever watch the Lonely Island video, the Bash Brothers video, the Andy Sandberg video?
1: Uh, I don't think so. Oh, you got to watch I don't it's think it. I've
0: ever it's on Netflix. It's comedy. It's pure comedy. It's just a fun little, uh, little video tribute to both the Bash Brothers. So make sure you also read The Bash Brothers, A Legacy Subpoena. Where can people find that book, by the way?
1: It's on Amazon still, Barnes & Noble. You can get it online. I'm not sure if it's in, in any bookstores still. It's, what, 12 years ago I wrote it. Well, you can still get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or some online outlets. It's still available. Or, or Potomac Books. My publisher was Potomac Books. Okay. Now they're the University of Nebraska Press.
0: Oh, interesting. You can go through
1: them as well.
0: Okay. Well, what is available right now is your new book, Billy Ball, Billy Martin and the Resurrection of the Oakland A's. I have my signed book that you sent me in hand right here. I'm so excited to read it. Thank you so much. But for those who don't know, Who was Billy Martin, and why was he such an important person to the organization to the point that you actually dedicated a book to him?
1: Well, well, Billy Martin uh, was—and this is about the uh, the, uh, Bay Area ties, too. Billy Martin was this this Yankee legend, and people will always connect Billy Martin with being a scrappy uh, second baseman, a fighter, a scrapper uh, with the New York Yankees. But he was also born in West Berkeley— and also led the the Oakland Oaks of the Pacific Coast League back in the late 40s with Casey Stingle, when when Billy Martin was the second baseman for them, he helped lead them to their first Pacific Coast League title since 1927. So Billy Martin had all these Bay Area ties, and when when I was doing research for the book, and I was fascinated because in 1979, the year before Billy Martin came and managed the A's. The A's lost 108 games. Mm -hmm. Their season attendance was less than 307,000. And they were drawing like 3,500 a game back in 1979. As you read it, you'll find out. But when Billy Martin, when Finley hired Charlie Finley, the A's former owner, when he hired Billy Martin on February 21st, 1980, the A's tripled attendance in 1980. And by 1982, the A's had drawn over 1.7 million. And broke the all-time A's franchise franchise record, including including uh, Philadelphia and Kansas City. And by 1982, the A's were named Organization of the Year by Baseball America. So, and, and as I was so fascinated by this renaissance from 1980 to 1982, in my research, the difference maker was Billy Martin. Yes, Ricky Henderson was there. He was doing his thing, Mm -hmm. and Billy, they really worked good together, and Billy Martin really uh, encouraged him to be the base dealer that he was. But Billy Martin was uh, the difference maker, and this is when the A's, they were about to move to Denver. Baseball interest interest in Oakland was at an all-time low, and here Billy Martin comes in, this feisty manager who had just gotten fired in 1979 from the Yankees for fighting with a salesman in Minnesota. He comes in and just totally resurrects the A's and makes them into a commodity worth buying. The Hawks family purchased a team from Charlie Finley in August of of 1980. So the Hawks family purchased the A's and kept them in Oakland and is still still here today. So it's just a great story about a, a Bay Area kid coming back home to resurrect his hometown team, the Oakland A's.
0: Well, I am personally thankful for that. And I, you know what? I had no idea until I did a little research on this that the A's were talking about moving to Denver. I had no idea about it. You, you hear all the recent stories about when they were trying to find a ballpark to get the ballpark going between you know free, moving to Fremont, then there's talk about Portland, talking about Vegas, all these different cities. But I had no idea that Denver was in the cards at one point.
1: Right, right. And that's when I, I do a lot of research and a lot of people that read my book It's like, man, we didn't know about this. When did this happen? Exactly. That's because I'm an independent author, and I do so much research. It opens eyes, and they 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 learn. And I'm sure people, even from that work for the A's, uh, learn about this Denver thing and how, while while Finley and Major League Baseball, they were Finley agreed to sell the A's to Marvin Davis, this oil tycoon in Denver, but. Finley signed a 20-year lease with the Oakland Coliseum and when he first got there in 1968. So the Coliseum and Oakland officials were not going to let Charlie Finley take their A's, the A's, to Denver. So they forced him to forced him to stay. And that's when Finley finally found a buyer in the Haas family in August of 1980. And they didn't have to go to Denver because the Haas family, who, who were philanthropists, mm-hmm. the and Walter A. Haas was the chairman of Levi Strauss. He kept the team, and he wanted to keep the A's as a landmark for Oakland. And the Haas family built a romance with the community and just a t- tremendous owner to really preserve Oakland A's baseball in Oakland.
0: And we're happy to keep it that way. So let's keep it that way here in Oakland and in the Bay Area. Here's the thing. Your book also came out during the time of COVID. You launched this book in March. Are you doing any, like, author meet and greets and anything virtually? How's that going?
1: Well, yeah, the book came out in March, and I did a lot of those when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did the Oakland Library, did, a, did an event for the book. I was on a, certain, a lot of podcasts and newspapers. Uh, the book is, is out on all, on all online outlets. It's in some bookstores that are open, uh, but you can get it on the Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, or different bookstores. It's all over. The book came out in March, and yeah, I had a lot of plans to for, to do, uh, in-person events, but as you know, COVID happened and a lot of authors like me had to adjust to it, but we still managed to get on a lot of, uh, do a lot of virtual panels to talk about baseball. It, it was just a great opportunity. So as much as you could say, Oh yeah, COVID they have, uh, you know, ruined any promotional opportunities. It uh, affected all of us. So I'm not going to play victim at all. It's, just, it's, a, it's a good book and it's out there and, uh, had a great time promoting it virtually and through those other avenues that you could do even through this pandemic.
0: Well, I'm very excited to read. It. And you also have a Ford by Ken Korak, the one and only voice of the Oakland Ace.
1: Right. Classic. Ken, Ken Korak, Billy Bean. He, he's a great guy. I know Billy Bean. He, he helped me back 10 years ago when I started in this business, giving me interviews. Ken Korak, just a act great guy i want to give a shout out to king korak too
0: i will say as i am greek um i was one of the few people i don't know if billy remembers this but i am one of the few people who has permission to call him his greek name of vasili vasili in greek is billy so i'm one of the few people who can actually call him vasili bean so that's my little claim to fame so but yes thank you so dale thank you so much fascinating interview and I'm very very excited to get my end of summer reading going. Billy Ball, make sure check it out. Billy Ball, Billy Martin, The Resurrection of the Oakland A's. Uh, thank you, Dale, so much for joining me today and it's been really enlightening and really eye-opening to hear everything you have to say about Mark McGuire and the Bash Brothers and the Oakland A's.
1: No problem. Uh, my pleasure talking baseball with you, Anna.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dale. A big thank you to Dale for joining me today and talking about his books and Mark McGuire. So now I'd like to hear from you. What do you think about Mark McGuire? Should he be part of the Hall of Fame? What about the other players part of the steroid era? Let me know your thoughts. Reach out on Twitter at Anna that's Kagarakis, that's K A G A R A K I S or by using the hashtag Sports Time Machine. Some other interesting events happened on August 14th in history? They say we- In 1965, Sonny and Cher's song, I Got You Babe, topped the charts. It was the first single off their debut album, Look At Us. It spent three weeks at number one and sold more than a million copies. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you again for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're also available on all your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagaraikis and on Instagram at Anna Kags. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Now, on the way out, How about a little Lonely Island Bash Brothers rendition? It's short because, well, otherwise I'd have to add the explicit tag on the podcast. It is hilarious, though, so if you're a fan of The Lonely Island, you'll love it. Just go check it out on Netflix. Well, thanks for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagaraikis, and we'll talk soon. On the web for what is the plural of goliath
1: goliath thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube